Welcome to Saturday evening Torah class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 38, Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is the midpoint of this special four-chapter section of Deuteronomy that runs from chapters 26 through 30. And these chapters are among the most studied, most revered by the Hebrew sages and rabbis. Because the meaning and impact of these passages is at once straightforward and simultaneously deep and mystical. Now now we're going to spend some serious time here, so get comfortable. We're also going to encounter those passages that the Israelites undoubtedly saw as the most serious threats against them should they disobey God. And the terms of the covenant that this second generation of of Exodus of the Exodus from Egypt has already resoundingly agreed to with their oaths and their declarations and their ritual ceremonies. So they're on board. They've said, yes, God, we will. Now, these threats from God are generally labeled as curses. And of course, this is the nature of Jehovah's justice system. In addition to the curses for those in disobedience and who turn away from Jehovah, there are blessings for those who stay near to God and demonstrate their love and their trust for him by means of their obedience. Now, since curses are at the center of what we're going to study today, before we read Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is a very long chapter, I'd like to take a few minutes to demonstrate something that Paul meant in the third chapter of Galatians about Christ becoming a curse for us. And it is that his disciples did not mean that somehow there is now a a one-sided, single-dimensional relationship with the Lord by which all believers can ever expect from God is his help and his prosperity. And thus, we're never subject to any kind of discipline from him when we sin and rebel and turn our backs on him. In other words, we have an important question before us that needs to be answered. What does Paul mean by the phrase, the curse of the law? And that since Christ has become a curse for us, that we're no longer subject to it. What does he mean by that? First, let's read a brief statement of St. Paul's in Galatians. Don't turn there, I'm just going to read it for you, starting at Galatians 10, and it's uh, the next three verses. Because everyone who depends on legalistic observance of Torah commands lives under a curse. Since it's written, cursed is everyone who does not keep on doing everything written in the scroll of the Torah. Now it is evident that no one comes to be declared righteous by God through legalism. Since the person who is righteous will attain life by trusting and by being faithful. Furthermore, legalism is not based on trusting and being faithful, but on a misuse of the text that says, anyone who does these things will attain life through them. 
The Messiah redeemed us from the curse pronounced in the Torah by becoming cursed on our behalf. For the Tanakh says, everyone who hangs from a stake comes under a curse. Now since we've been looking in chapter 27 of Deuteronomy at a, at a whole list of curses upon those who violate God's laws, we have to be careful not to confuse this list of curses, meaning the prescribed punishments for various acts of sinning against God, with the phrase, the curse of the law. Let me say that again. We have a whole series of curses, plural, for doing evil, are doing evil, over and against the curse. Singular. And it is this misunderstanding between curses and the curse that's led to so many Christians walking around blissfully expecting that A, they have nothing to fear from God no matter what they do. And that is because B, nothing we ever do would cause him to discipline us for our actions. In other words, God would never punish a believer for sinning. Now, I'm not going to spend time going over the various curses for breaking God's laws that we've studied, because it's a pretty long list. Okay? And they're generally self-explanatory. But what now, then, is the curse of the law? What was Paul talking about in Galatians? I think the best way for us to see that distinction is to examine a few Bible verses that employs the term the curse in a variety of ways. I'll read them to you. Don't, don't go there in your Bible. It'll take you too long. First, I'm going to read from Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24, 1. Look, Adonai is stripping and destroying the land, turning it upside down, scattering its inhabitants. Cohen, priest and commoner, slave and master, maid and mistress, buyer, seller, lender, borrower, creditor, debtor. The land will be completely stripped, completely plundered, for Adonai has spoken his word. The land fades and withers, the world wilts and withers, the exalted of the land languish. The land lies defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the teachings. They've changed the law. They've broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse is devouring the land. Its inhabitants are punished for their guilt. It is why those living there waste away and the people left are so few. Why does this text say that a curse, singular, is devouring the land instead that God is simply acting enacting all of those curses or punishments that come from breaking all the many laws that they broke? Is it that God is but invoking one particular curse out of that long list? No, I'm going to show you why. Now listen to Jeremiah 42, starting at Jeremiah 42, 15. Then in that case, listen to the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you really set your mind to enter Egypt and go in to reside there, then it will come about that the sword which you're afraid of will overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine about which you're so anxious will follow closely after you there in Egypt and you'll die there. So all the men who set their mind to go to Egypt to reside there will die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, and they will have no survivors or refugees from the calamity that I'm going to bring on them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and wrath have been poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you enter Egypt, and you will become a curse an object of horror, an imprecation and a reproach, you will see this place no more. Now I chose to use the NAS translation of Jeremiah because it's more literal than our usual complete Jewish Bible. Okay, The, the complete Jewish Bible that most of us use tends to use what scholars call a dynamic translation rather than employing a literal word-for-word translation. Now, a dynamic translation attempts to put in modern terms what the author concludes those ancient Hebrew words meant. Therefore, if we look at our complete Jewish Bible, we'll see that in place of translating the Hebrew word kelala, in Jeremiah 42.18 is curse, which is its common meaning. Instead, it says the object of condemnation, which is what a curse meant. This indicates that for the one who has come under a curse as a result of rebelling against God, he is the one who is the object of God's condemnation. Now, let's add another verse that gives us a little bit more context for understanding what the term the curse means. We're going to find that in Proverbs 3, 33. Adonai's curse is in the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. So once again, we see that God's curse is not quite the same thing as the various curses, meaning punishments. All right, One receives for breaking one or another of his laws and commands. Rather, the term God's curse means God's condemnation. If a Hebrew steals something, then he's placed under one of the appropriate specified curses listed under the law. If he's injured a brother and thus broken fellowship with the Lord, the law says he must make restitution to the rightful owner, plus add a little more as a penalty, plus make a sacrifice of atonement to God at the temple altar. Note that this thief was not condemned Because in the Bible, just like in our society, condemned technically means to be put under a death sentence. Unless the term is just used poetically or a metaphor. When the Bible says a person is condemned, it means that person is due the death penalty. And that death penalty can mean physical death, It can mean spiritual death. It can mean both. Now listen to a verse we're going to be studying 
couple more weeks from Deuteronomy 30 that starts to put an even sharper point, not only on the meaning of the term, the curse, but also on the term, the blessing. Because just as a listing of curses is not the same thing as the curse, so is a listing of blessings, not the same thing as the blessing. Okay. Deuteronomy 30.15 Look, I am presenting you today with, on the one hand, life and good. On the other hand, death and evil. In that I'm ordering you today to love Adonai your God, to follow his ways, to obey his commands, regulations, and rulings. For if you do, you will live. You will increase your numbers. And Adonai your God will bless you in the land you are entering in order to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, if you refuse to listen, if you're drawn away to prostrate yourselves before other gods and serve them, I am announcing to you today that you will certainly perish. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. See, this passage essentially defines what God means by the terms the blessing and the curse of the law. The blessing of the law is life and good. The curse of the law is death and evil towards you. It is a common expression among the Jews to say that Torah is life. Meaning that to follow Torah brings the life that God wishes to give all of us who trust in Him. Conversely, to not follow Torah brings death. The opposite of life. Because that means the violator doesn't trust Him. When Yeshua died on the cross, He didn't take away God's punishments upon his followers, he simply took away the condemnation of eternal death. Christ certainly didn't abolish physical death for us, at least in the present world. That's pretty self-evident. And as we see in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the vast majority of the sins committed against the Lord had some sort of of punishment associated with each. Each had a specific curse. But only a handful of those sins ever invoked the death penalty, the curse. So it is with modern-day disciples of Jesus. Generally speaking, we can and we will commit sins against the Lord. And at times we're going to experience God's hand of discipline in the form of certain divine punishments upon us. But we are spared from the eternal separation from God that is normally the result of those sins. Which is what, frankly, all men deserve. Eternal separation. Disciples of Yeshua are spared from the eternal death penalty. We are spared from spiritual condemnation. We 
are spared from permanent separation from God. We are spared from the curse. The choice being offered here in Deuteronomy to the 12 tribes of Israel by means of the Mosaic Covenant and the very similar choice that is offered by the renewed covenant in Yeshua our Messiah is between the blessing and the curse. Or as the Bible has shown us, between the blessing of life and the curse of death. Now with that as a preparation, let's read Deuteronomy chapter 28 together. Deuteronomy chapter 28, the page 227 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. <clears throat> if you listen closely to what Adonai your God says, observing and obeying all his mitzvot, his commands which I'm giving you today, Adonai your God will raise you high above all the nations on earth, and all the following blessings will be yours in abundance if you will do what Adonai your God says. A blessing on you in the city, a blessing on you in the countryside, a blessing on the fruit of your body, the fruit of your land, the fruit of your livestock, the young of your cattle and flocks, a blessing on your grain basket and kneading bowl, a blessing on you when you go out, a blessing on you when you come in. Adonai will cause your enemies attacking you to be defeated before you. They will advance on you one way, but they'll flee on you before you seven ways. Adonai will order a blessing to be with you in your barns and everything you undertake. He'll bless you in the land Adonai your God is giving you. Adonai will establish you as a people separated out for himself as he has sworn to you. If you will observe the commands of Adonai your God and follow his ways. Then all the peoples of the earth will see that Adonai's name and his presence is with you and they'll be afraid of you. Adonai will give you great abundance of good things or the, of the fruit of your body, the fruit of your livestock, the fruit of your land and the land Adonai swore your ancestors to give you. Adonai will open for you his good treasure, the sky, to give your land its rain at the right seasons, to bless everything you undertake. You will lend to many nations and not borrow. Huh. Adonai will make you the head and not the tail. You will be only above, never below, if you will listen to and observe and obey the commands of Adonai your God and not turn away from any of the words I'm ordering you today, neither to the right, to the left, to follow after other gods, to serve them. But if you refuse to pay attention to what Adonai your God says and do not observe and obey all his commandments and regulations which I'm giving you today, then all the following curses will be yours in abundance. A curse on you in the city. A curse on you in the countryside. A curse on your grain basket and kneading bowl. A curse on the fruit of your body. The fruit of your land, the young of, our, of your cattle and flocks. A curse on you when you come in and a curse on you when you go out. Adonai will send on you curses and disasters and frustration and everything you set out to do until you're destroyed and quickly perish because of your evil actions and abandoning me. Adonai will bring on you a plague that will stay with you until he has exterminated you from the land you are entering in order to take possession of it. 
Adonai will strike you down with wasting diseases, fever, inflammation, fiery heat, drought, blasting winds, and mildew. They'll pursue you until you perish. The sky over your head will be brass, the earth under you iron. Adonai will turn the rain your land needs into powder, dust that will fall on you from the sky till you're destroyed. Adonai, your God, will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You'll advance on them one way and flee before them in seven. You'll become an object of horror to every kingdom on earth. Your carcasses will become food for all the birds in the air and the wild animals. There'll be no one to scare them off. Adonai, your God, will cause you to be defeated. Adonai will strike you down with the boils that broke out, broke out on the Egyptians. Tumors, skin lesions, itching. All of them incurable. Adonai will strike you with insanity and blindness and utter confusion. You'll grope about at noon like a blind person groping in the dark, unable to find your way. You'll be continually oppressed and robbed. There will be no one to save you. You will get engaged to a woman, but another man will marry her. You'll build a house. You won't live in it. You'll plant a vineyard, but not use its fruit. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, but you won't even eat any of the meat. Your donkey will be taken away from you by force as you watch. You won't get it back. Your sheep will be given to your enemies. There will be no one to help you. Your sons and daughters will be handed over to another people. You'll watch for them longingly all day and not see them. There will be nothing you can do about it. A nation unknown to you will eat the fruit of your land and your labor. Yes, you will be continually oppressed and crushed till you go crazy from what your eyes have to see. Adonai will strike you down in the knees and legs with painful and incurable boils. They will spread from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. Adonai will bring you and your king whom you put over yourselves to a nation you haven't known. Neither you nor your ancestors. There you will serve other gods made of wood and stone. You'll be so devastated as to become a proverb, a laughing stock among all the peoples to which Adonai will drive you. You will carry much seed out to the field, but gather little in because locusts will devour it. You'll plant vineyards and dress them, but Neither drink the wine nor gather the grapes because worms will eat it. You'll have olive oils, olive uh, trees throughout your territory, but not anoint yourself with the oil because your olives will fall off unripe. You'll father sons and daughters, but they won't belong to you because they'll go into captivity. The bugs will inherit all of your trees and the produce of your land. The foreigner living with you will rise higher and higher while you sink lower and lower. He'll lend to you. You won't lend to him. He'll be the head. You'll be the tail. All these curses will come on you, pursuing you, overtaking you until you're destroyed because you didn't pay attention to what Adonai your God said, observing his commandments and regulations that he gave to you. These curses will be on you and on your descendants as a sign and a wonder forever. Because you didn't serve Adonai your God with joy and gladness in your heart when you had such an abundance of everything. 
and I will send your enemy against you, and you will serve him when you're hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and lacking everything. He'll put a yoke of iron on your neck till he destroys you. Yes, Adonai will bring against you a nation from far away that will swoop down on you from the ends of the earth like a vulture. A nation whose language you don't understand. A nation grim in appearance. A nation whose language, uh, and, uh, rather, whose people neither respect the old, they don't pity the young. They'll devour the offspring of your livestock and the produce of your soil until you've been destroyed. They'll leave you without grain and wine and oil or your young cattle and sheep until they've caused you to perish. They'll besiege all your towns until your high, fortified walls in which you trust collapse everywhere in your land, which Adonai, your God, gave to you. And then because of the severity of the siege and the distress that your enemies are inflicting on you, you'll eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your own sons and daughters, whom Adonai, your God, has given to you. Even the most gentle and sensitive man among you, he'll be without pity for his brother, his beloved wife, his surviving children, to the degree that he'll refuse to share with any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he's eating. Because if he did, he'd have nothing left for himself. All this in the severity of the siege and distress your enemies are inflicting on you in your own towns. The most delicate and sensitive woman among you, so sensitive and delicate, she wouldn't think of touching the sole of her her foot to the ground. She'll begrudge her own beloved husband, son, and daughter that she will secretly eat the afterbirth that comes out of her, even her own children, as she bears them so desperately. Hungry will she be. In the severity of the siege and distress your enemies are inflicting on you and your towns. If you will not observe and obey all the words of this Torah that are written in this book so that you will fear this glorious and awesome name, Adonai your God, then Adonai will strike you down, your descendants with extraordinary plagues and severe sicknesses that just go on and on. He will bring back upon you all the diseases that the Egyptians had, which you were in dread of, They'll cling to you. Not only that, but Adonai will bring upon you all the sicknesses and plagues that are not written in this book of the Torah until you're destroyed. You'll be left few in number, whereas you were once as numerous as the stars in the sky because you didn't pay attention to the voice of Adonai your God. Thus it will come about that just as once Adonai took joy in seeking to do you good and to increase your numbers, so now Adonai will take joy in causing you to perish and be destroyed. You'll be plucked off the land you are entering in order to take possession of it. Adonai will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you will serve other gods made of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. Among these nations, you'll not find repose. There'll be no rest for the sole of your foot. Rather, Adonai will give you their anguish of heart, dimness of eyes, apathy of spirit. Your life will hang in doubt before you. You'll be afraid night and day. You'll have no assurance that you'll stay alive. 
In the morning you'll say, oh, how I wish it were evening. In the evening you'll say, oh, how I wish it were morning. Because of the fear overwhelming your heart, the sights your eyes will see. Finally, Adonai will bring you back in ships to Egypt, the place of which I said to you, you will never see it again. And there you'll try to sell yourselves as slaves to your enemies, but no one will even want to buy you. These are the words of the covenant which Adonai ordered Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, in addition to the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. The first word of chapter 28 is if. If may be the biggest word in the Bible in terms of spiritual impact. The proposition is that if Israel will follow the terms of the covenant, then God will bestow his blessings upon Israel. I've mentioned in the past as a most Bible teachers have taught that the Mosaic Covenant is called a conditional covenant. That is, as compared to the Abrahamic Covenant, which is called an unconditional covenant. Now, as Paul went to great length to explain, a good way to look at an unconditional covenant, specifically the Abrahamic Covenant, is that it consists purely of a promise. The covenant God made with Abraham was not based on if Abraham will do something, then God will respond by keeping his promise. Rather, it was that God promised a whole series of things to Abraham because Jehovah asked Abraham if he'd like to have all these things. All these things which were blessings. And Abraham responded, yeah, I would. The most typical way that the Abrahamic covenant is thought of is as a unilateral covenant. Covenant. It's a one-way bargain from God to man, with God doing everything and nothing's required from man in return. Therefore, scholars typically describe the Mosaic covenant as bilateral, in that it is God to man, but with God expecting something in return. Both sides have obligations to the other. Now I want to slice that in just a little thinner. Because while I generally agree with those descriptions, we can also get the wrong idea about what the true nature of the covenant made on Mount Sinai with Moses as the mediator is and just what conditional means. Okay, The Abrahamic covenant is, I think we'd all agree, based on God's grace. God simply gave it to Abraham as a free gift just as he gave mankind salvation as a free gift. Our duty is just to accept it. But the same is actually also true of the Mosaic Covenant. Let me explain. A pretty good analogy to a covenant is contract. It's not precise. It's close enough for discussion. We all understand contracts. We have them when we buy a house, when we buy a car. Sometimes we have contracts with our employers, especially in the entertainment and sports industries. 
And the idea is that the contract is essentially a series of mutual obligations. If one side fails to live up to one or more of the contractual obligations, then the usual result is the courts and lawyers get involved. Rarely is the contract merely voided as the penalty for one side or the other violating the contract's terms. Here's the point. The Mosaic Covenant was a gift to Israel. It was an act of divine grace. Once that covenant was accepted by Israel, the violation of that covenant didn't mean that the covenant was voided. It just meant that some penalties kicked in. Just like in most contracts. Essentially, in exchange for the blessings that the Lord offered, Israel declared that they were willing to accept certain consequences, called curses, if they failed to live up to their part of the deal. However, just as with almost all contracts, the Mosaic Covenant wasn't voided. It wasn't thrown into the trash when its terms were broken. Rather, some penalties that were written into the contract were activated. Naturally, the penalties were strictly on Israel's side because God never changes or goes back on his word. You know, several years ago, I had a home built for my family. And as part of the contract, I negotiated a very firm completion date. And if the contractor completed the house earlier than the agreed-to date, they received a certain dollar amount for every day they completed it before that due date. They received a blessing. But... If they failed to complete it by the due date, they were dunned a like amount for every day past the due date. A curse. But even if they failed to make the due date, was the contract canceled? I don't think so. It's just that a built-in curse was enacted if they didn't do what they'd agreed to do. There were other penalties built in as well for other kinds of situations, but none of them voided the contract. The thing is that the Mosaic Covenant did not operate such that if Israel brought God's curses down upon itself, all of which were terms that were written into the covenant, no small print, no surprises, the covenant wasn't voided. It was only that whereby blessings would have been bestowed on Israel by means of obedience and adherence to the terms. Instead, there would be curses for violating the terms. The covenant remained intact. The covenant wasn't voided because Israel didn't have to do anything to keep it intact. Rather, once the divine gift of the covenant was ratified by Israel, the whole congregation agreed to it. Just as Abraham ratified the covenant with him simply agreeing to it, then all that was left was for the terms to play out. The difference between the two covenants of Abraham and Moses was Abraham's had no penalties, no curses. 
because Abraham had no obligations. But the Mosaic Covenant did have penalties. It did have curses because Israel did have obligations. The Mosaic Covenant is alive and well. In fact, the New Covenant in Christ is but the Mosaic Covenant renewed and written on our minds, our hearts. With Yeshua is the source of both purification and atonement for those who accept its terms. And also with Jesus as the renewed covenant's mediator. Just as an Israelite wasn't permanently removed from God's grace for their misbehavior, except if it was the kind that essentially proved his last lack of trust and submission before God, so it is that no believer is permanently removed in general from God's grace for our misbehavior. But think about this. Under Messiah's covenant, we do have obligations, don't we? Most Christians still acknowledge our duty to adhere to the Ten Commandments. Some think there are no more than Ten Commandments over our heads, but I don't agree that that's all there is. Even if I did, the fact that we have ten concrete obligations for every believer means each is obviously capable of being violated. So our new covenant does have obligations. Therefore, it's not precisely in the mold of the Abrahamic covenant. Consider this. If, as some say, the Mosaic covenant replaced the Abrahamic covenant, and then the new covenant came along and replaced the Mosaic covenant, why couldn't another future covenant, currently unknown to us, supersede and replace the new covenant? That's a little startling thought, isn't it? Certainly the Hebrew people knew of no plan of God to make the Abrahamic covenant obsolete, nor did they know of any plan to make the Mosaic Covenant obsolete. Now they did know that the currently operating covenant was going to be renewed and transformed and put on their hearts. That's about it. Whether it should have been or not, the new covenant in Jesus seemed like an unwelcome surprise to even the most learned of the Jews. So if we accept the false notion that God made a whole number of covenants in the past and then from time to time he suddenly sprung a new one on his people that voided all the previous ones, why should we be so confident that Yehovah wouldn't suddenly spring in us an even newer covenant in the near future that makes the new covenant in Christ obsolete? those who would validate such a thing have certainly said that to do so would be well within God's pattern. By the way, what I just said to you is essentially what Islam says happened. 
Yes, they say we venerate Yeshua, but then see, Muhammad came later, and he was the bearer of an even newer message and deal from God. Even newer than the one from Jesus. It wasn't that Jesus' message was false. It's just that God's now overruled Jesus and replaced his prophet Jesus with Muhammad. That's essentially what Islam believes. Mormonism says they have a covenant newer than the New Testament brought to them by their prophet Joseph Smith called the Book of Mormon and that it supersedes the New Testament. Why should the same Christians who claim that God makes covenants, declares them to be forever, and then replaces them with new ones, object to Mormons believing that that's exactly what God did through Joseph Smith? The answer to that rhetorical question is, that God isn't going to spring a future covenant on us that voids his prior ones because he didn't create forever covenants and then void them. That's just not his pattern. And the new covenant hasn't voided the Mosaic covenant and the Mosaic covenant didn't avoid the Abrahamic covenant as replacement theology says all, all that happened. Well, the next thing we notice in verse 1 is that significant Hebrew word Shema is used to gain Moses' audience's attention. That is, in English we read, if you listen, what it says is, if you Shema. Let me remind you that Shema means to listen and obey. It does not just mean to hear. Because in modern English, the words listen and hear are passive words. We can sit right where we are and listen or hear, and we feel no obligation to take any action. Shema means to hear what God has to say and then do it. It's an order. I can't stress enough that what I'm telling you isn't allegory. This is the meaning of the Hebrew word Shema. And the Lord says that if Israel will obey him and if they will faithfully observe his commandments, then the Lord will give Israel the greatest of privileges. Privileges, he says, above those given to the rest of the people on earth, whom, by the way, he also loves. He says that he promises to give these blessings to Israel as his part if Israel will do their part and obey him. I stress, as I did earlier, it does not say that if Israel disobeys God, then the covenant goes in the trash can. There are six blessings that begin Deuteronomy chapter 28. They all focus on prosperity and fertility. Prosperity and fertility are at the heart of life and of good things. Verse 3 says that by being faithful to the covenant, Israel will be blessed. In Hebrew, Baruch. Baruch. 
He'll be blessed in the city, blessed in the countryside. This is what scholars call merism, which is a big word that simply indicates a Hebrew grammar structure designed to show that everything in between two extremes is included. So the idea is that whether it's in the largest, most sophisticated, most populous cities, or it's in the smallest little simple village, in the least populated areas of the land and everything in between, Israel in its entirety will be the receivers of God's blessings if they will obey his laws and commands. Next is what is known in verse 4 as the threefold blessing. The idea is that every kind of life that is good and useful and permitted for use by the Hebrews will be blessed in Israel. Human life, domestic animal life, plant life. The Hebrew word that's usually translated in this verse as cattle is behemah. Behemah. And it means all animals suitable for being domesticated, not just cows. Typically, more specifically, not in every case, refers to animals that are suitable for food or suitable for sacrifice, or typically both. This is a good place to point out that Bibles that typically and correctly translate the threefold blessing as the fruit of the womb, of the cattle, and of the land, meaning the earth, the soil. I think a better translation is perhaps issue of the womb, the cattle, and the land, because too often we hear the rude the word fruit to mean something good, inherently something good. In fact, the Hebrew peri doesn't necessarily make the fruit, meaning what the human parent or plant or animal produces to be of good quality or value. But in this case, peri, the fruit, what results from Israel's people, animals, and land, however it is, it's going to be blessed. Not because it's so wonderful, but because they were obedient to God. Now, continuing in that vein, verse 5 says that as a result of the blessed fruit of the land, the vessels used for gathering the produce will also be blessed, meaning they'll be made full. The kneading bowls used to, to make bread will be blessed by always having plenty of grain to make plenty of bread dough. So the overall idea is an abundance of food. And verse 6 is really a Hebrew idiom. It says that you're coming in and you're going out will be blessed. It's actually a phrase that was used to denote military activity. In the most literal sense, it is getting across the idea of entering and going out. But in its idiomatic sense, it speaks of going out to battle, achieving victory, and then coming back home safely. That's what it means. So, of course, that co connects directly to the next verse, verse 7, about how Jehovah will go out before the army of Israel and he'll win the battle against Israel's enemies before the battle even begins. And this is expressed in another Hebrew expression of how an enemy army is going to arrive, it says, in a nice organized marching column. 
a single road, but it's going to flee in all directions and panic. Flee by seven roads. The seven doesn't mean a literal seven. It just means in every way possible. Verse 8 says that the Lord will fill the barns full of produce and bless all the Israelites' undertakings. The idea is that one's labor, whatever it is, will be productive. Whatever one is trying to produce, it's going to turn out well. Yet in the middle now of Moses' sermon about all these wonderful blessings in store for Israel, he pauses for effect. He stops naming all these wonderful blessings and reminds Israel of the requirements and the condition necessary for all these blessings to happen. The Lord will declare Israel to be his holy people if they keep the commandments of God. And since Moses reminded those standing before him, allow me to remind those of you present before me that this is such a direct parallel and connection with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I came to this conclusion some time ago. And if you can become comfortable and familiar with this parallel, then you are you're going to have a very useful tool by which to show your family and friends just how connected are the Torah and the New Testament writings. Turn to Matthew 5.1. I'm going to demonstrate this joyful, eye-opening pattern that we just read here in Deuteronomy by which we get this list of blessings interrupted by the covenant mediator, Moses in Deuteronomy, Jesus in Matthew, to remind those in his audience that the blessings he is pronouncing do have a caveat. Obedience to God's commands is required. Matthew 5. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1227. I'm going to read the first 20 verses. Seeing the crowd, Yeshua walked up, to the, walked up the hill, and after he sat down, his Talmudim, his disciples came to him, and he began to speak. This is what he taught them. How blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. How blessed for those who mourn for they'll be comforted. How blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the land. How blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be fulfilled. How blessed are those who show mercy, they'll be shown mercy. How blessed are the pure in heart, they'll see God. How blessed are those who make peace, they'll be called sons of God. How blessed are those who are persecuted because they pursue righteousness. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. How blessed you are when people insult you and persecute you and tell all kinds of vicious lies about you because you follow me. 
Rejoice, be glad, because your reward in heaven is great. They persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. You're salt for the land. But if salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything, except being thrown out for people to trample on. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Likewise, when people light a lamp, they don't cover it over with a bowl, but put it on a lampstand so that it shines for everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they may see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven for it. Don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a uterus or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah. Not till everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so is going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys, whoever obeys them and teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Because I tell you that until your righteousness is far greater than that of the Torah teachers and the Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice in both cases, we have this recital of blessings, 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 blessings. And then a pregnant pause. With the mediator interjecting that nobody should misunderstand what he's getting at. That obedience to God's commands is the price for joining this covenant and for remaining in the blessings of this covenant. That's the price. As Paul says in Romans 11, starting in verse 17, But if some of the branches were broken off and you a wild olive were grafted in among them and you become equal sharers in the rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast as if you were better than the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you're not supporting the root. The root's supporting you. So you'll say, well, branches were broken off so that I can be grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified. For if God didn't spare his natural branches, he's not going to spare you. Take a good look at God's kindness and his severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off. On the other hand, God's kindness towards you. If... You maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you're going to be cut off too. Notice that just as in the Mosaic Covenant, the watchword is if. If you maintain yourself in that kindness, otherwise you're going to be cut off. Now, I hope 
that you take the time to really think about this. Maybe even to write it down and go over it and show Deuteronomy 28 side by side with Matthew 5 to someone you know who still thinks that the Old Testament is dead and gone or that obedience to God's commands is a thing of the past. And supposedly it has no place in the life of a believer. That to obey God's written commands is legalism. So we're to avoid that like the plague. Because that person is standing on a very slippery slope. Next week, we're going to begin to look at this extensive list of curses that makes up the bulk of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Okay, we'll see you next time.